0: Our scripture focus is found in First Samuel chapter eight verses 1 through 22. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son was named Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward a dishonest prophet, took bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Samuel told all the the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will answer you on that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel, appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you, go back to your city. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning. Can you guys hear me? Am I on? I'm on. Good to see you all. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. If I don't know you, I hope to after this. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be going through the passage that Alexa just spoke for us. This is First Samuel chapter eight. If you have a physical Bible with you, I'd encourage you to yeah pull it out, look at that table of contents. If you don't have it, if you need it, go to flip on over to First Samuel. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you just a quick story. 11 years ago, some of you may not know this about me, but Amy and I, we used to be swing dancers, like semi-professional swing dancers. I used to teach swing dancing in Seattle. I was a part of like a swing dance troupe that we would tour around Seattle and just all of Washington, Idaho, and Montana, and we would teach like workshops and stuff. And 11 years ago, Amy and I were part of this group that we would go around, we would teach us, and one of these events was we were set up to travel and do a workshop in Montana. And being the total swing dance nerds that we were, we would dress up in these old wool suits that we found from Goodwill, and we would put on these fedora hats, and the ladies would dress would, dress up in dresses, and we would go to the Seattle King Street Station and we would take the Amtrak train to Montana, like old school, right? We didn't need cars, because we... I don't even know if we had, we had one. But anyway, that's not the reason why we took the train. We took the train because it was cool, it was like old school. Anyway, so we would go there, and um, you can just imagine this group of eight to 10 of us, all dressed up to the nines in, uh, in 1920s gear, and we go in, to this old musty train station where we sit down on these old wooden benches and we wait for our train that's never on time anymore. Anyway, the Amtrak train is never on time now. And uh, as we're sitting there, I'm looking around and it's just maybe the experience of the excitement, you know, that you're, you're sitting there, you're waiting for the train, it's all really cool. But it's like a really old and kind of musty and smelly place. And I'm looking, I'm just looking and observing my surroundings, and I'm looking at the the square panel ceiling, the fluorescent lights that are shining down, and then my attention gets drawn to this corner where there's just this opening in the ceiling. And it's just a dark hole up there. So I naturally say to myself, what is up there? I want to look. So I walk over and I look up, and all of a sudden everyone comes because my reaction is, what? is that, everyone stands up and they walk over and then they all begin to look up at the ceiling and where they see this. Up above those gray panels and those fluorescent lights is a 40-foot high, beautifully plastered piece of architecture in our Seattle King Street station. And we're all just looking at it wondering what happened. And we go on to see, and I come to find out that in 1906, there was this architecture firm that approached the King Street Station and said, listen, you're not doing very well. So what you need to do is you need to be modern. You need to be fresh. You need to be cool like everyone else. So we want to help cover All of the things that make you unique so that you will be modernized. You'll look like everyone else. And over the time of the endless pursuit of trying to be modern like other train stations, they ended up looking like this. What I came into. But over the course of the time, what I found was that that corner piece, that corner opening that we all found ourselves just looking up towards was the, was the beginning of a restoration project for the King Street Station, where they wanted to go back and restore and revive what they once were. All of the beauty, all of the uniqueness, they wanted to tear down those musty old gray panels, the fluorescent lights, and restore what was ultimately Then they were easily dismissing all of the difference that they were. But now, after the restoration project, you can go to King Street Station and you'll find this. That's the King Street Station. People get married there. People take photos there. It's a, a wonderful piece of architectural art that you can see up there, all of that beautiful plaster work is now on display for everyone to see. It's been revived again. But in the pursuit of being like everyone else, the King Street Station gave up all of their beauty, all of their uniqueness, and dismissed her difference so that they would be just like everyone else. And our passage this morning tells a definitive moment in Israel's history where they would dismiss their difference as a holy nation. A nation under God's kingship to be like everyone else. And after, spirit, after years of spiritual renewal, godly leadership and peace, Israel determines the solution to a leadership crisis is to look out towards the surrounding nations And adopt and model what those other kings are doing and have a king like the other nations rejecting God as their one true king. And friends, I hope that this passage that you will see that the Christian life is marked by being different. And yet, we tend to seek our security outside of God. And I hope that this passage shows us how we must learn not to dismiss our difference, but to remember our restoring faith that is ultimately found in Jesus. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to discern and to see your wisdom? Help us, help us see the truth that you display in your scriptures so that we may turn from the temptation of dismissing our difference to capturing the truth and the reality that you, have, that you are renewing us in the image of Christ and will ultimately restore us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's let's start this chapter by reading verses 1 through 3, and we're just going to see this leadership crisis that began everything. So, verses 1 through 3, it says this When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways they turned towards dishonest profit, took bribes, and perverted justice. So we're taken to this time, many years after our last chapter, where Israel is thinking through a transition. The transition of Samuel's leadership to another. Right After years of consistent spiritual dedication to the Lord, it paid off. It benefited them. They We're in a much better place as a nation and as a people, right? The accountability and the leadership of Samuel, traveling, it proved incredibly rewarding to Israel. He was a true judge. He was one that led his people away from the apostasy that they once practiced and called them back into the promises of the Lord, right? All good things, all wonderful. But here you can see there's one problem. You can see the problem is, is that his sons did not follow in his ways. His sons practiced the same corruption that we see from Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, years before that. And if you're you're new to this study, if you're new to this study, we've been journeying through 1 Samuel, and the first few chapters give us this picture of this trio of corruption, this father Eli and then the two sons, Hophni and Phinehas and how they all together, but mainly through the, uh, the movements of, of Hophni and Phinehas, they, they corrupt, they corrupt this, uh, this position that they are in as, as priests. And so now you see the same problem happening again. This time, however, Samuel is somewhat, is, is detached from it but his sons are ruling as kings. So it kind of leads us to ask, what happened? What on earth happened, Samuel? What happened to your sons? Israel's in such a good place, and yet your sons now are corrupt, just like Hophni and Phinehas. We don't want this again. We don't want this again. But I want to show you a few things before we start making too many assumptions about Samuel. The first is that the author is clear to to separate Samuel by giving them where they live. Beersheba was on the opposite side as Ramah, where Samuel lived. So as his sons are serving as judges under his his, uh, leadership, Keep in mind this word, they turned toward. They turned toward corruption. Earlier in the passages describing Hophni and Phinehas, it gives it more of a, a definitive picture of they were corrupt. Hophni and, but his sons, there's this moment of, of turning toward corruption and moving away, separating themselves from Samuel. But still, We are left with the question of what happened. But to be fair, to be fair, I think a fair interpretation when we're reading this passage is to not look at what is the fault of of Samuel, but to be as disappointed as a parent would be witnessing the corruption of their children. The author is not holding Samuel here in the same way as Eli, rather, it's addressing the hard, hard reality for parents that children may break our hearts, even when exposed to a lifetime, a lifetime of faithful examples. In this passage, it it, it motivates not to see Samuel's faults, but it motivates parents to keep laying down the kindling of faith. Keep laying down the kindling of faith in your kids in the hope that God will light the flame. We keep laying down the kindling. We're praying for faith. We're praying for discernment. We're laying down the kindling of faith in church, You guys are fanning the flame, even if the flame's not there yet. In the hopes that God will light that flame of faith that will never go out. So that our kids may never turn toward corruption like we see now, but rest in the stability and the reassurance and the hope of Jesus. But in this case, we don't have that moment Instead, we have the disappointed of a parent looking at the corruption of his children. And in this case, one thing is clear about the present situation, which is this. Israel's well-being is not going to be found in the sons of their leader. And Samuel is getting older, and that's proving to be a problem. God God had not yet provided another option, so Samuel's old age was genuinely a leadership crisis. But let's go on to read verses 4 and 5. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Notice that distinction. Therefore appoint us as king to judge us the same as all the other nations. Now, we do this. When our security is threatened and we're unsatisfied with the turn of events and maybe the prospective future, we tend to gaze our eyes in the direction of others and mimic other solutions instead of spending the time to discern and ask what God is doing in this moment. Because it's easier, it's far easier to copy someone else's solution than to try to solve our unique problems. And honestly, we're even more comfortable doing that because blending into another's fabricated security, rather than discerning our own, at least gives us something to hang on to, something that we can see, something that we can feel when the future is unknown. But also, Israel's desire was not necessarily the desire for a king. Because Deuteronomy 17, it gives us this description of describing a time when Israel may turn from the leadership of judges to a kingship and what that kingship would look like. So this is what it says. In Deuteronomy 17, it says this. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, take possession of it and live in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me Verse 15, you are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Their desire was a king that judged the same way as the other nations, not the king that God would choose for them. Because in that moment, God was their declared king. They wanted a king that operated the same as everyone else. They were looking for quick solutions, and they were looking for something that they could see, not trusting and discerning discerning in the unknown. Their identity was in their king as a nation, but the the murmurings of comparison drew their desires away from discernment and into false security that ultimately found its resolutions in the answers of everyone else. Murmurings turned to quiet discussion. Quiet discussion turned to expressed desires. Desires turned to coveting. Coveting turned them away to deny what they had already had. Friends, a sinful inward murmur, though just a murmur, when not confessed and when not brought into the light of community, can turn into an expressed desire that may turn disastrous to who you are and to what you're meant to be. The elders request, appoint us a king to judge us. Thinking that's reasonable. That's a logical to solution to a current problem. This is very plausible, but it is utterly godless. And let's, let's see how God gets to the heart of the matter here when he's with Samuel and then with Israel. So we go on to this moment where Samuel comes to God in prayer as a mediator, as the leader that he is. And in verse 6, this is verse 6 through 9. This is what he says. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them, about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So two things I want to focus on in this this moment of dialogue between Samuel and and the Lord is I want to focus our attention on this, on how God addresses the heart of the matter in both Samuel's heart and then in in Israel. So first, when we're thinking about Samuel, notice in verse 7, the phrase, they aren't rejecting you they are rejecting me. Samuel never mentioned, Samuel never mentioned his feelings of rejection. But he didn't have to because the unspoken groanings and sadness of his heart did. God is giving him direction and speaking directly to his heart, because Samuel's feeling the sting. He's feeling the sting of a rejected leadership. But God is speaking beyond what Samuel is verbally saying and speaks a reassurance to his personal anguish and sadness of Samuel's change in leadership, having spent his entire life Investing his entire life to God in ministry, his personal calling is so wrapped up in God's mission that he didn't distinguish himself from the rejection of Israel's request. Psalm 139 says, before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty and I am unable to attain it. We are unable to attain how God can address the heart of the matter in our lives in the things that we don't even say. But yet he interprets the groanings and the pain of our hearts and speaks words of comfort and reassurance into them. God exposes our hearts' longings and sadness and knows the sting of pain before we say anything. That is a wonderful comfort. Our hearts cry a silent language of groanings that only our Heavenly Father can interpret. Let me say that again. Our hearts cry a silent language of groanings that only our Heavenly Father can interpret. When the the Puritan John Bunyan, when he was sitting in, in prison for preaching the gospel, he was in there for around 12 years or so. But while he was in there, members of his church would write him letters and they would write him questions that they that they would hope that he would answer them. And one person asked this, which I think we can so identify with, he says this person asked, wrote, "Why is it that when I pray and I intend to pour out my soul to God, I can't think of anything to say." And he responded this, "Ah, oh, sweet soul." It is not your words that God so much regards, unless that is, if you're trying unless you're trying to give some eloquent speech. His eye is on the brokenness of your heart. And it is your heart that makes the very deepest inner parts of the Lord run over. To sit in the unspoken groanings. Of your heart with God in prayer is enough sometimes. Have you ever been in a place where you've sat down, where you've come to God in prayer, and you can't think of anything because your heart is being ripped into pieces? And the heartache and the pain of what you've been experiencing is so bad that the words have lost your mouth? Friends, it's enough. It's enough to come before your God and just let him speak the words to you. Do you feel that? Do you feel that reassurance that God is speaking to Samuel? They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. The pain that you feel in your soul is valid, and I understand it, and I can tell you, this is the heart of the matter, not just the pain that you see, he's bringing them out. But in the same time, well, let me, let me speak another psalm here. It says, Lord, you, my every desire is in front of you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart races, my strength leaves me, and even the light of my eyes have faded. This might be, that that's Psalm 38 verses 9 and 10. That might encourage you. So write write that down if that encourages you, especially right now if you're going through one of those seasons. Christian, rest in the comfort that your heavenly Father knows the unspoken groanings of your heart. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me. But in Israel's case, God is going to get to the heart to expose a long, long history of sin. The murmurings, the quiet discussions, the veering their eyes away has not been a new thing. But it's been a persistent, sinful habit that they have continued to do. The the Bible tells us a story of a gracious God loving a people who constantly turn away from him. God tells Samuel, it isn't about you, it's about me. But even in, even in this deeply offensive request, this deeply sinful desire, God is not surprised His character and even his sovereignty, they're not hindered. Instead, he instructs Samuel, go and tell them what they're asking for. Go and tell them what they're asking for by giving them the solemn warning. And this is verses 10 through 11, where he says, Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, these are the rights of the king. Who will reign over you. And and instead of walking through that whole passage, I'm going to just list them so that you can hopefully see just the drama of the effect. Because what he's describing to them is what you really want is you want to give yourself away, and this is what an earthly king will take your sons. Verse 11, those who, the men that you've been raising to continue on in your lineage, to continue on, he's going to take them away from you. Your daughters, he's going to take them. He's going to take your fields He's going to take your vineyards. He's going to take your olive orchards. That's all verse 14. That's everything that you've worked for to provide a stable income, a stable surrounding for your family, for your nation, everything you've contributed to, your best fields, vineyards, orchards. He's going to take all of it. Your seeds, your harvest. Not only is he going to take the, the ending result, the, the fruits from that product, he's going to take your seeds. He's gonna take all this, he's gonna take even the ability to grow fruit. He's gonna take that. He's gonna take your servants. He's gonna take your maidservants. All of the help that you have around the house, he will take. He's gonna take your young men, those men who can lift those burdens for you, who can carry that heavy load and can walk and can do that work that you can't do yourself, he is going to take. He's gonna take your best calves. He's going to take your donkeys, your labor animals who carry things for you. And not only that, he's also going to take the small cattle. He's going to take the small donkeys. He's going to take the ones who are growing up to be these things. He's going to take all of it. He is going to take you. You. The earthly king is going to take everything away from you including yourself. This is the reality at stake. Feel the tension of Samuel delivering this message. Do you want to give yourself away so easily, so logically, so rationally, and have nothing left? in efforts to have the same security as everyone else, they give themselves away. The king to the, that they desire will take everything from them. When Samuel is giving this list, the, Israel, the elders should have had the story of Yahweh flashing in their minds. This is not only a warning, this is a reminder. This is a reminder of who was their king that brought them out of the land of Egypt. The king that they desire acts nothing like their God. The story of the scriptures is one of a gracious God who does not take things away from his people, but gives them everything. Gives them everything. What your heavenly father has given is throughout the Old Testament, and it's this, your sons and your daughters. Genesis 28, verse 13, I will give you offspring, land. Exodus 6, I will give you land that I have promised you, food and provisions. The Lord will give you meat this evening, and he will give you bread, all the bread you want in the morning. Rest. Not only will you have to, will I give you work, will I give you things to collect, I will also give you rest. That's Exodus, or that's Joshua 1, verse 13. Not only will I give you provisions, not only will I give you offspring, not not only will I give you land, I will give you your identity, I will set you apart. Leviticus 20. And not only that. I, your heavenly king, will give you myself. I am not a king who takes, I am a king who gives. I will give you myself, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, Exodus 6, verse 7. The Old Testament is not filled with phrases of, the Lord will take, it is filled with phrases the Lord will give. Because it is a story of a loving God, loving a people who constantly turn away from him. The solemn warning of what they will get when they give themselves away is a reminder of who their God is and all that he has given them. Samuel is pleading, don't dismiss your difference. You are a different people. You are a people set apart. You are, remember who you are. Remember who you are. But what is their response in verse 19? No. No. We must have a king over us. Then we will be like all of the other nations and our king will go out and judge us, will go out before us and fight our battles. Now that's the grossest part of this, because that phrase is in Joshua, when Joshua and Israel are walking out and they say, our king is going to give us leadership, that under his authority will go out, that will judge us, that will go out before us, that will fight our battles. They're twisting God's words. It's gross. They're twisting his words. And Samuel listens to the people and then he repeats them to the Lord because Samuel's not a part of this. Samuel is like, these are not my words. They are their words. But listen to what God says to Samuel again because this is the third time that God has told Samuel, listen to them. God, they want a king like all the other nations. Listen to them. God, they want a king like the other nations. Listen to them. They want to give up their identity of who they are, and they want to follow all of these other nations. Listen to them. The Lord finally says, appoint them a king. Then Samuel told all the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. Chapter 8 is a mirror not only revealing the sin and the character and the nature of Israel, but of us. How easily we dismiss our difference. How easily we misplace our trust and cast our eyes towards false security, towards false things, away from the God of stability. The Christian life is marked by being different. We are called, you are called a royal priesthood for a reason. It's because our ultimate allegiance is to the King of Kings. And yet, Time and time again, we tend to turn our eyes away from the one who makes us different, brings stability, brings security towards quick, logical, but godless solutions. We don't like to be different. So we resist. And we grow comfortable in the tension of pushing promises away. What promise are you pushing away? What promise are you pushing away? When you look at this list in chapter 8, what item is moving to the surface here? Just because we don't have Field animals doesn't mean that we can't see, that that's uh, a message of provisions, that there's a message of security. What is coming off of the page right now? Because, friends, we all have, we all have a list that we cling to. And, and honestly, this is, this is the danger, this is the danger of the prosperity gospel. Because the prosperity gospel says, hold up your list first, Hold up your list, hold up your things, hold up your stuff. And God is going to be down here and he's going to just bless you with all of it. But God is saying, let go of your list. Let go of your list. Let go of your stuff, let go of your comparisons. Excuse me. I have given you myself And that is enough, because in myself I will show you, I will show you who you are. Because you are my people, and I am your God. The good news of the gospel is that our God has kept his promise. The good news of the gospel is that our God has kept his promise. Amen, church? Despite our shortcomings, despite our frequent failure of looking to other things for security, to casting our eyes away, God brings us back, sometimes gently and sometimes loudly, to the renewal of our minds and the restoration of ourselves. We are given, even in the midst of our dismissing our difference, we are given a promise of difference because our God renews to ultimately restore. And this is the promise of difference. The reason why Friends, the reason why we pray for spiritual renewal is because despite our brokenness, because despite our shortcomings, spiritual renewal places us back in the hope of the promise of the future restoration that God will bring us. Spiritual renewal places us back in line with the promise of a future grace, of a future restoration. Through the ministry of the Spirit, we are renewed and remembering that Jesus reigns as King and that he is bringing ultimate salvation. And this bringing us back, bringing us back into it, that is the, the promise that God always promises us through the gospel. Because we do this, we have a tendency to dismiss, a tendency to ignore, a tendency to grow comfortable in the tension, all the while your God is bringing you back and realigning you through a spiritual renewal so that you will see clearly the promised restoration that is ahead of you. And you will walk in that light. You cannot do it on your own, but through the grace of Jesus, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you can. And as revealing as as chapter 8 is, of all of our tendencies, the scriptures reveal and even more than just that, God's heart towards those Who he loves and he calls his children. Israel has forgotten their God, and as the God who has brought them out of slavery, but God has not forgotten them, because His promise, His promise, still remains. he would continue to remind his people of his love for them. And in light of this passage, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. And if, if you don't want it, you can read it on the screen ahead. But this chapter 11 is through years of Israel turning away from God. This mirror that we look at, this reflection, this is an example of the promised restor- uh, restoration That God gives His people. This is what He said, and I'm just going to read this out loud. This is Hosea verse 11, or Hosea. I'm sorry, chapter 11. When this is coming from the words of God, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I had healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To to them I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Going on to verse 7. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Abner? How can I treat you like Zeobim? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. Feel this, church. Feel this, church. I will not vent my full fury of my anger, and I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am a God, not man. Amen? I am a God, not man, the Holy One among you. And I will not come in rage, for they will follow the roar. They will follow the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling. From the west, they will be roused like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I... Will settle them in their homes. Then I will settle them in their homes. That is a powerful God with a deep, deep love for His people. Our future condition is in the one of promised restoration. Because he did not release the full fury of his anger on us, but he released it on his son so that you might live. Your difference is that you are brought into the resurrection of Jesus Christ and have been given new life in him. You are deeply, deeply loved by God. And his promise is one that does not end. You are a miracle. You are a miracle. You are loved by the God of the universe. And his love for you is reflected not only in his son's death on the cross, not only in the resurrection of of Jesus, but in the continuous prayers of his son, Jesus Christ, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Be renewed in the promise that when you sway, he will straighten you. When you doubt, he will reassure. When temptation leads you to dismiss your difference, one of two things may happen. God may graciously lead you back. One, As one sinning against him, he may lead you back into a place where he can whisper sweet words of tender grace to you where he can whisper sweet words and draw you back. Or he may graciously, may graciously and loudly roar like a lion so that you come back, but you come back trembling. Our God is one who does not give up his children. And the promise that we have in this is He has gone through far more to demonstrate his love so that you will not dismiss your difference. So don't. Look to the promises of grace that God gives. Look to the promises that God gives because God has something to say in the scriptures. God has something to say for the scriptures. And also, let me just tell you this. Israel's know that is so reflected and, and reveals ourselves. God has a set of can nots too. Last week, Vivian got baptized. And when she got baptized, she shared her Bible verse with her that spoke to her. And I want to share that again, Vivian, because this is God's can nots. What we often say in notes, he gives and cannots. Romans 8, 38 through 39. This is what it says. For I know that nothing can keep us from the love of God. Death cannot. Life cannot. Angels cannot. Leaders cannot. Any other power cannot. Feel that hope, church. Feel that hope. Hard things now or in the future, they cannot. The world above or the world below cannot, any other living thing cannot keep us away from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I feel like you should respond with amen. Amen, right? Let's, let's, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling. Nothing can keep us from the love of God, which is... Ours in Christ Jesus. That is the promise of the future restoration, even in the moments when we dismiss our difference. In the seasons and in the times when we have forgotten about our God, he has not forgotten about us. And he's going to remind us, whether it's through tender words or roaring like a lion, he's going to remind us. You guys pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not dismissed us even when we dismiss you. Father, let us never forget your grace and your promises. Give us a renewed faith a renewed faith to keep us from dismissing, to keep us from veering our eyes towards fabricated securities, to keep our eyes from looking everywhere else but you. Let us remember your promises and we cannot do it without you. We need you. Lord God, I pray for the person the person here who needs to hear the message that they are deeply loved. God, there is someone who has forgotten. Someone has forgotten who they are. In this long year of a pandemic, in this long year of pain and of hurt, Someone has forgotten who they are, and Lord, I pray that you will show them how deeply in love with them you are, and how you are drawing them back, drawing them back towards yourself. Let us look to Jesus. And remember that you are all we need. You are all we need, God. Give us eyes that look to the ultimate hope of restoration. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.